the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'm sitting at my desk with a blank screen in front of me, fingers hovering the keyboard, air tapping nervously, mind racing, all because I was asked to show up with a sermon today. I stare at the scripture texts from Isaiah, God telling us to look at his chosen servant, his own Holy Spirit put on him to bring light and justice to every people group on earth. And I turn to Psalm 89, news of King David, God chosen and anointed to rule forever in power as the greatest of kings. God is well pleased with this son. A report from Peter, close friend and eyewitness of Jesus, describing Jesus using similar details as Isaiah and Psalms. Finally, the eyewitness account of Matthew, of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan, the Holy Spirit not just hovering but coming to rest on him to the delight of God, his Father. So you're telling me that a king who lived a thousand years before the events of the New Testament, a prophet who lived 700 years before the just mentioned events, and a certain tax collector who walked with this Jesus around 30 AD all seem to be talking about, despite living in different times, different places, the same person. This person resembles, but somehow greatly surpasses all the ones that they've imagined up to this point. Not just a son, a servant, but the son, the servant, the judge and healer of all nations. The Bible from stem to stern is all about, in the end, one particular person. What are the odds? Think of that for a minute. Let's have a look at this king, this prophet, and the man who showed up to be plunged in a river. More about this later. In three ways, basically. First, the Hebrew scriptures point to, if you can allow these analogies, they point to a sword and a stone so fixed that no one but one person could remove it, or a glass slipper that no one can quite fit but one person. Two, the entire Bible reveals the person that can remove that sword or fit that glass slipper. And three, what difference does that make to you, to me? Quickly, well, let's start at Genesis, start at the beginning. The Bible depicts the first humans as servants of God, called to tend and to protect his garden, to keep evil, to keep the serpent out. They rebelled, they fell into ruin, as did the earth and its creatures. Adam and Eve disobey, they cave to crafty evil, they hide in shame, they lie, they blame shift, they turn the world dark. Yet their creator pursues them and promises one to come who will set them and the world straight. God then promises Abraham and Sarah a vast worldwide family under the rule of God. And later, God calls a group of slaves from Egypt and turns them into a nation. They are to become the servant. Adam and Eve refused to be. They were to be a light to all the dark world. 
But the sad, frustrating history the Bible records is Israel's failure to be God's servant of light and justice. So Isaiah brings news that God turns again to a servant. In chapters 7, 9, and 11, Isaiah says this servant will be born to a virgin, will be God's own son, and to, quote, the people who walked in darkness, who lived in a land of deep darkness, he will come to them as a great light. How could Isaiah see such light in the dark? Well, a fellow named Paul Robinson I read about, did some research on icebergs, of all things. He said that if you flew to the North Atlantic and over a large pack of icebergs, you'd notice something strange. Small icebergs would be moving in one direction, while the large ones would be moving in another. How is that possible? It turns out the surface winds are moving the small ones, while the powerful deep ocean currents are moving the large ones. Isaiah looked at the darkness all around him and in faith saw it for what it was, the surface winds of his day. He knew the Lord God moved and steered the deep currents of history and that God would have his way, drawing every nation of the world to himself. But even in the dark, he was moving in power to bring light. And so we read of this servant that Isaiah presents to us in chapter 42 of his work. I'm aware that many know the Bible, that know, that know the Bible, including Jews past and present, interpret Isaiah's prophecy in this chapter and others as pointing to Israel, not to a single person. But if you look at the second half of Isaiah 42 that we have before us this morning, if you go to verses 18 through 25, God says that his servant Israel was a blind and deaf messenger, hardly up to the task. So Isaiah would keep pointing from that chapter on to a servant that accomplished what Adam, Eve, and Israel's leaders and people failed to do. He says he's well pleased with this servant and that this servant would take on humanity's fallen state and suffer to rescue him, all of them. He would suffer in place of his people. He would die, yet live again, forgiving his enemies and setting all things right on his own. In Isaiah chapter 59, and the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel both say much the same thing. Isaiah insists that no human being can lift the curse of sin and death. No one is good or powerful enough. So God himself, the cosmic judge, stepped from behind the bench of, of the eternal courtroom, took off his robes, rolled up his sleeves, and came down himself to make things right. How would that look? So the biblical prophets, you see, spoke about this coming one, and they dropped clues that they couldn't all put together without help. This one would be the greatest prophet, the greatest priest, the greatest king, one of David's line and descent. But this one would also be named Emmanuel, God with us. It's fascinating that 
Isaiah in chapter 42 tells us that God gives his glory to no other. And yet, in Jesus Christ's own prayer before he went to the cross, he prayed to his Father that the glory which the Father had given him, the glory that they shared, he might be able to bring those who know him to where they can see his glory as well. I thought God didn't share his glory. What does this mean? Some in the Old Testament records, such as Moses the prophet, Melchizedek the priest, David the king, the people of Israel, are put forward. Are they that great servant? I mean, even for a brief moment, the Persian king Cyrus, whose empire crushed Babylon and who allowed the Jewish exiles to return home, got nominated for the role. Yet none of their feet, no matter how hard they pushed and squeezed, really fit. No one of them could pull that sword out of the stone. As years rolled on, a clearer picture emerged of one yet to be born. Just a few centuries before the New Testament period arrived, the prophet Micah got very specific, predicting that this one would be born in Bethlehem. You see, Old Testament prophecies are like stones skipping across a pond in momentary but only partial fulfillment. It's as if they saw a great mountain peak in the distance and in heading toward it, they pursued and thought they had arrived at it only to find themselves on a mountain ridge that led only further to a higher ridge line. And then that one leads yet to another and another. And then, as Paul tells us in his letter to the Galatians, quote, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to rescue and adopt all who will receive him. So let's go on to point number two. See, this turns out to be not only, quote, the greatest story ever told, but also the greatest story to have actually happened. Like a constellation of stars slowly gathering closer and closer until they coalesced into one great star over the village of Bethlehem, the town of David. An infant cries, himself older than the stars. This one, the servant, the one for so long hoped, would make his way from child to adult. In our gospel account, he approaches his cousin, John the baptizer at the River Jordan, with a surprising request. It stops John cold for a minute. He asks John to plunge him in the water and in the mud. He said he must do this to fulfill all righteousness, meaning that in order to rescue us from our self-centered futility, from decay and death, Jesus must take on the mess that we have made so that taking our place, he might draw all cosmic wrath and punishment onto himself, that God could then gift us with the acceptance and love and right standing that belongs to his son. So finally, what difference does this make for us? Can you agree that this world, for all its wonder and beauty, 
is often a dark place. That justice, truth, and peace are largely beyond reach. Ephemeral. The power tends to corrupt. That even the greatest nation on earth seems not only to have lost its way, but is doing so at all deliberate speed. The true light, says the Apostle John, has come into the world. This light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He came into the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. He came to his own people. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him and do now, he makes all the difference in the world. This suffering servant that Isaiah spoke of brings forgiveness in his train. Transfer from being left to our own devices and desires. Natural enemies of God sinking ever further into ruin into adopted sons. Inheriting radiant, abundant, eternal life, mercy, grace, true freedom from slavery, justification, all flowing from the manger overshadowed by the cross and validated by the empty tomb. Jesus, the strong, humble, gentle, suffering servant Isaiah promised, moves quietly, deliberately among us. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. All the promises of God find their yes in him. And in him our weary souls can find rest. His word to us is, as always, no matter the circumstances we face, take heart, I have overcome the world.